You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, community radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Correct, correct, correct. Good luck. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. When I was a child in the 1960s, I remember being enthralled with Jacques Cousteau's amazing documentary film, World Without Sun, about the vast living world under the sea. On the show today, we're going to hear some fascinating stories from Peter Goro, who comes from an eminent marine biology family and whose father and mother did the first major scientific studies of corals and coral reef biology beginning back in the 1950s. Peter recently returned from a trip to Jamaica for a fifth-year celebration in honor of the laboratory that his father and mother started and the founding work they did on coral and marine biology in Jamaica. This is an edited version of Peter's own show, Spanning the Chasm, from about three weeks ago that airs every Sunday afternoon at 1.30 here on WGDR. I have a story. My father, Thomas F. Goro, was actually a well-known coral reef scientist. In fact, he created the field in the 20th century. And he started here at Goddard (laughs) in the 1938-1939 period when my grandparents who lived in New York City were looking for a progressive educational environment for their extremely bright young son. And they found this place called the Goddard Seminary and that met their qualifications and they sent him here and he was here for several years. And, you know, I ran into the archivist here at Goddard and they was very kind enough to look in his archives and found a photograph of my father as a teenager handling diamondback rattlesnakes. And yes, I, that's one of those stories that I remember from my youth was the fact that my father had a bunch of poisonous snakes (laughs) from his youth that he kept and fostered and loved and milked and sent the toxins and their venom to various scientists here in the Northeast who were doing some of the fundamental early studies on stuff like that. And so there are a lot of interesting biochemistry and medical importance of of these toxins and antitoxins that have developed. And my father here at Goddard 
kept snakes, milked them, and provided this venom for research purposes to places such as Yale and Clark University and Harvard and other places like that. So Goddard actually represents the beginning of this story and the end, in a way. So... After my father graduated from Goddard, he went on to, I believe, Clark University and then to Yale University, where he was the student of one G. Evelyn Hutchinson. Now, G. Evelyn Hutchinson, for those of you who remember (laughs) last century, and one of the great works of scientific literature of the 20th century was the work on limnology. It was a three-volume treatise on limnology by G. Evelyn Hutchinson from Yale University. He was a very famous ecologist, and he essentially created and illuminated the field of limnology. Limnology is a study of lakes, but it could as well be oceanography, the study of oceans. Because I remember as an oceanography graduate student at Woods Hole studying that book, G. Evelyn Hutchinson, on limnology for techniques to be used in the ocean. It was a really one of those seminal works. And G. Evelyn Hutchinson, I mention his name because if you look at the tree, the academic tree of his effect upon the world of ecology as we know it today, G. Evelyn Hutchinson is one of those incredible stocks which gave rise to this huge diversity of ecologists and ecology and schools of ecology that all came out of his sort of genius. He was a sort of genius and he was also a a regular kind of member of our household. So he visited us in Jamaica. So my father, as a young man, realized and got involved. He was hired by a gentleman called Roger Revell. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the history of science in this 20th century, but Roger Revell was one of those formative figures of oceanography in the 20th century. And he was a scientist to start with, and then during World War II, he became a commander in the Navy, But all was interested in science and how the Navy could foster science. And then after World War II, I think became director of the Scripps Institute of Oceanography at some point. But he was also involved with the atom bomb and the hydrogen bomb and all that stuff. And of course, they blew those bombs, unfortunately. They blew those bombs on Bikini Atoll and Enuitak Atoll. Here my voice breaks. Yeah, because the beginning and the end, that is where my father studied the effects of nuclear weapons on coral reefs and where he got a lethal dose of radiation that killed him a few years later. My father was involved in looking at the effects of nuclear weapons on coral reefs. At the time they did those explosions, which was the late 1940s and early 50s. And 
he became utterly fascinated by coral reefs and recognized the fact that coral reefs had not been studied really at all in the 20th century, which had engaged itself in war primarily and the funding of war. And out of this came this opportunity to study coral reefs. And he recognized that coral reefs had not really been studied. There had been one study of coral reefs in the 20th century, which occurred during the interlude between World War I and World War II, and was conducted by a gentleman called Sir Morris Young. Sir Morris Young was a British scientist working out of the Bristol University and latterly Edinburgh University. And he had had an expedition to the Great Barrier Reef in the 20s. And out of that expedition came a report of the Great... And it was really the only one of the few scientific works that had been done on coral reefs in the 20th century. And my father picked that up and started the study of coral reefs. But in the 1940s, the way it was the beginning of the nuclear age, all this promise, it was coming out of World War II, out of the American victory in World War II, and out of this, my parents met studying radiological techniques at the University of Chicago in the physiology lab at the university. Physiological radiological techniques, because, of course, in those days, radiology was everything. And that was, you know, it was kind of the promise of the future. It was a two-edged sword, of course. However, my parents met over a Geiger counter. My mother was studying the endocrine system, the human endocrine system. My father was learning techniques to study the physiology of corals and skeletogenesis. And they met, married, and then went back to Yale, where my brother was born. And then, as a consequence of being in contact with G. Evelyn Hutchinson, my father then moved and took a job at the University of the West Indies, University College of the West Indies, that's called, back in the 19, 1951. So he came in 1951 with my mother and me in utero and my older brother, and we came to Jamaica to study corals and coral reefs. But my parents taught in the medical school in the Department of Physiology, and in the Department of Physiology at that time, and this was a British educational establishment. It was a coming to the British colonies, and so the root academic roots came from England and University College London and Cambridge University, and it was called the University College of the West Indies in those days. And then it latterly became in the mid-50s and, and it became University of the West Indies. It is a Caribbean institution. It is a multi-campus institution. There's a campus in Mona, Jamaica. There's a campus in Cave Hill, Barbados, and one in St. Augustine, Trinidad. And I think there are others as well. However, those are the three main campuses of the University of the West Indies, which was started in 1950 in what is called the Gibraltar refugee camp, which was a camp for refugees from Gibraltar and, and Malta during World War II and latterly then became a prisoner of war camp for German prisoners of war in the closeout of World War II. And before that had been a sugar plantation. So this is the University of the West Indies where I was born and grew up. So why am I telling you this? Well, 
The last two weeks I was invited back by the University of the West Indies to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the start of the Discovery Bay Marine Lab. <laughs> so I was invited back by the University of the West Indies to come to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Discovery Bay Marine Lab, the place my parents founded. It was more than 50 years ago, but the main lab as it is stands now is 50 years old. But it started really in 1951 with my father's interest in corals and coral reefs. Because out of our home, our home became the first marine lab in Jamaica. And we built our aqualungs. We built our aqualungs from the spun aluminum cylinders which were surplus from the B-29 bombers. And they were built to hold high-pressure oxygen for the high-altitude bombing flights of World War II. And they were built so that you could shoot through them. And they, at 3,000 pounds per square inch, they wouldn't explode. They would just let out their pressure. So they were incredibly strong tanks. And these were left over from the war. And we adapted them into aqualungs. They held 90 cubic feet of air at 3,000 pounds per square inch. And we had a surplus compressor. And we ran the compressor on the back porch of the house for hours and hours and hours pumping up these aqualungs, which we built from these cylinders, which were left over from World War II. My father also was one of the earliest underwater photographers, and they built their underwater cameras there. And they built them to take the Roliflex two and a quarter by two and a quarter cameras, and they cast them in sand. They cast aluminum in sand to make the housings. Here's the thing, I was invited back for the 50th anniversary, but I was there when they did all these things, and I was one of the people who helped pump those tanks, and who helped make those underwater cameras. The first underwater cameras we built out of um, cast aluminum, and they were subject to failure at a fairly high rate. Yeah, we drowned quite a few of them back in the early days. However, the other thing we did was we used the machine shops. So I remember as a young kid learning to lathe and to use the milling machines and to make these very flat surfaces which were necessary to take the O-rings that held the water out of the cameras. We also cast our lead weights because lead was extremely hard to come by in those days. I think it was in the lee of World War II. Lead was used for ammunition, and it was extremely difficult to get lead to make lead weights to go diving with. And so Dad, at one point, came back from America with a poundage of lead, and we melted it down on a Primus stove using kerosene on the back porch and I was passing beneath the back porch was kind of elevated and I was passing beneath as a child when one of the divers who was helping cast the lead weights which were cast one at a time in a single lead weight casting mold kicked the primus stove and that lead the molten lead fell kind of covered me 
It covered me from chest to, to knees. And I was suddenly engulfed in this lead sheet of lead, molten lead that turned solid on me. And I ran for the bathroom. My, my father caught me halfway, stripped the clothes off me and sent me naked into the bathroom. Where, And then I went to the hospital and spent a few days there. But I found out when I came back that, that they had stripped the lead off my clothes and put it back in the pot, melted it down again, and cast those lead weights. So, anyway, I was invited back because historians have now recognized that the formative period of coral reef ecology happened in those 10 years that my father operated out of Discovery Bay and the University of the West Indies. And now, it's taken 50 years, but now they sort of recognize that the coral reefs and, and the zonation of the coral reefs, the naming of the coral reefs, which sort of, in the Aboriginal understanding of the naming, is a thing that distinguishes it out of chaos. When you name the parts of the coral reef, the back reef lagoon, the reef crest, the buttress zone, the four reef zone, the deep four reef, these are names. They didn't just come out of thin air. They came out of years of observation about the zonation of a reef and years of study of coral reefs. And it turns out that my father was the person who named the parts of the reef. The modern terminology of coral reefs was first named in Discovery Bay, Jamaica. And I, as a child, was party to that in the sense that I grew up to it. I knew nothing different. All my life as a child was spent filling aqualungs, and then we would fill the small boat that was on a trailer, and we would trailer it out to any one of a, a hundred, two hundred sites around the island. And we would go diving. We would come arrive really before dawn on Saturday morning, and we would dive in the morning, we would dive in the afternoon, and then we'd bring the stuff back. And it was one of those kind of formative experiences. That was my childhood. That's how I spent my childhood. I spent my childhood going to these coral reefs all around Jamaica. At the time that my father was developing the terminology of the coral reef and developing and writing the papers, which are the seminal papers in the study of coral reefs, certainly in the 20th century. And, of course, I didn't know that. I merely was his faithful attendant. I was always with him. I always helped him. I went out on all of these trips. And now that 50 years have passed... Historians are looking at it and saying, my God, in this period of 10 years, the whole field was developed and named and created. And it was primarily through the work of my father, who, I must admit, drove a group of people. So in order to do the diving, he started the Sabaqua Club at the University of the West Indies. In starting the Sabaqua Club at the University of the West Indies and introducing training for divers, he created the first 
kind of training for Sabaco Club and he trained the first Jamaicans and there were many Europeans as well because the University of the West Indies was a colonial institution. It came out of the British colony and the colonial structure and of course all or most of the professors were white people from Europe who had European dominance, you know, we are the master race type of attitude. And they came to the West Indies with that sort of attitude to form the first university. And there was this very top-down hierarchy. But they were a lot of hotshot young professors from Europe there. They were very interested in diving. And so consequently, a lot of people were attracted to the diving part of it. And out of those divers that my father trained came the core group of diving scientists and people who helped him make his observations. And he was doing, he was using these radiological techniques on the coral reef. He was injecting kind of specially isolated corals with water that had calcium 45 in it and watch the radioactive carbon being incorporated into the skeleton and later in looking at those coral skeletons you could see how the calcium was incorporated into the skeleton and he worked out the physiology and the chemistry, the biochemistry of how the calcium was being transferred from the ocean water into the skeleton of the corals. My father developed the field of coral skeletogenesis and it all has to do with the symbiotic relationship between the salenterates which are the corals and the zooxanthella which are the symbiotic algae blue green algae and brown algae that live under the skin of the semi-transparent coral it's a really interesting relationship that occurs in the tropical ocean and the tropical ocean typically is a blue blue transparent ocean where you can see a hundred feet or more such as the transparency of the ocean it's a it's a desert um, a Normal tropical ocean should be a desert. That is its natural condition. All the fertility has been pulled out of the water by the plankton, by the tiny single-celled algae, the prochloroplasts, I think they're called. They pull the, the nutrient out of the water and the zooxanthella, the, the, the plankton, then filter the water and they eat it. And there's not much in the water. So the corals have this relationship with the zooxanthella under their skin which photosynthesizes in the tropical sun and the the waste products of the coral feed the plant and the and the byproducts of the plant primarily sugars feed the coral and there is this almost like completely isolated system that happens except that there's an ecology and an ecosystem surrounding you you know every coral provides life for innumerable tiny creatures, the, the fry, the small fish, the baby fish, the, the slightly bigger fish. And, and the, a coral reef is a fractal creation. It's a creation that happens on many different scales, and, and there's complexity at all these different scales, from the fingering of the corals to the tiny polyps on the individual corals. They, they all have a kind of fractal resemblance, and they create these fractal forests, and these fractal forests are filled with 
tiny, at the tiniest scale, they're filled with the the larval stages of the fish of the coral reef. And, and at the slightly bigger scale, they're filled with the juveniles. And at the slightly larger scale, they're filled with the young ones. And then at the larger scale of the complexity. And, and so I grew up there on these reefs of Jamaica at their absolute prime in the 1950s and 1960s when my father was describing them in in the scientific literature. And then he created this marine lab on the north coast, Discovery Bay Marine Lab, and started it. And then in 1970, he died as a catastrophic cancer as a consequence of his having been a scientist at Bikini Atoll and at Enowitak Atoll. That history caught up with him, and he died at the age of 45. And this is the thing that they weren't even aware of at the lab, although they called the 50th anniversary. I, I buried my father out to sea, directly in front of the lab, but far out to sea in a place that I know. And I buried him there with a few other people. But I was the one who broke the, the seal on the um, flotation device that was holding up his ashes, which were enclosed in a tridacna shell, a giant clam shell from the Pacific. And I dropped him into the deep ocean of this place. I'm sorry, I haven't really confronted the place, but I took... When my grandparents died, his parents, and they were all Holocaust survivors... When they died, since they were so closely connected to him, and he died as a young man, his parents, we closed the ranks, I became the interlocutor of the generations. I buried my grandparents in the same place at the times of their death. And so, I have two generations of my family buried in the deep water off this lab. And they didn't actually know that. And they chose to have this celebration and they invited me down. I assume they, un- they knew that, but they didn't. And they, interestingly, they started the celebration with a church service <laughs> in St. Hans Bay in a church that had, was celebrating its 176th anniversary. It was a, a black church that had, had really ancient roots in the culture of Jamaica and they celebrated it with this incredible church service with this amazing Jamaican chorus singing all these beautiful hymns and it was one of the most lovely and most touching things I've ever seen in my life and it was just a service of incredible beauty and incredible passion as only up Jamaica can do it you know Jamaica coming out of its slave past and its, its colonial history and its rebellions and, and all that this is one of the most ancient churches and they sung it up in the most incredible way and they didn't realize that they did it on the day he died it was on Earth Day April the 22nd 48 years after he died they had a rip-roaring ceremony on the day he died, and they were unaware of the fact that that was the case until I mentioned it. And, of course, they thought it wasn't coincidental at all. But so for two weeks, 
I have been going down to the coast, which is a hurricane berm, a real high-energy hurricane coast. The hurricane berm, where the red mangrove and the black mangrove grow and the sea grape, before dawn every day, and I greet the sunrise right where I, right where I buried my my father and my grandparents every morning and for the first time in 30 years I've sat with my father and my grandparents every morning before dawn and then I would go out onto the reef crest and greet the dawn on the reef crest where I you know it's the best time of day in the tropics there's the trade winds, and the trade winds are continuous, continuous winds that blow from the northeast. But at dawn, there is this counterflow from the land. The cool air from the land blows out over the ocean, and it calms that water, and it makes it like a mirror. And the swells that are coming in are coming in on a mirror, a mirror surface. And at dawn, you get this mirror condition of the water. And when the sun comes up, that's the best time to photograph and my brother, my older brother, had bought me this tiny little action cam, a Sony wide-angle, unbelievable, a 4K. It's like the super high-density, high-quality images that it gets. And I took that camera out on the reef crest every morning at dawn, and I swam the reef crest, and I swam the back reef, and I swam the fore reef, and I photographed it as it is today which is a whole lot different from how it used to be. Because when I first started swimming there, it was 90% coral cover. And now it's maybe 5% coral cover. The coral has been devastated, absolutely devastated, in part by global warming, in part by coastal development. Corals grow in a nutrient-depleted waters, and now the waters are anything but nutrient-depleted because everyone is flushing their toilets into the aquifer. And this is a limestone coastline. It's a coastline that's been dominated by corals for 30 million years or more. It's the southern rim, the southern edge of the Cayman Trough, which is one of the deepest pieces of water in the, in the Atlantic Ocean between Cuba and Jamaica. And that's the Cayman Trough, and this is right on the edge of the Cayman Trough. There's this very, very narrow island shelf with all these fossil coral reefs, and they create this characteristic topography that you recognize above water and below water, and... It's a coral-dominated coastline, but it's also a hurricane-dominated coastline. So all the corals every now and then get ripped up and blown into a, into a rubble beach along the shore and, and into the mangroves, and the mangroves grow up through them. And it's just this harsh, harsh saline environment that certain plants and certain animals are adapted to and live there and live their lives. And I spent two weeks getting to know the rhythm of the place again, but also speaking to my ancestors and also taking part in these 50th year celebrations, which now the historians have got to it. Now with 50 years has given it the sufficient distance to recognize the, what happened in the 1960s and 1970. Uh, that place was seminal to the whole field of coral 
reef studies and coral reef ecology and I was there as a child and and my memories came flooding back because there were people there who you know they remembered something and that triggered another memory and another memory and finally all of a sudden these memories that I haven't had in 50 years 50 years can come flooding back and it's like my god I see the place anew for the first time, a place where I grew up and I knew every nook and cranny of the coral reef. We're listening to Peter Goro, the host of Spanning the Chasm, here on the Magical Mystery Tour. This is an edited version of Peter's show originally aired about three weeks ago. Peter's show, Spanning the Chasm, a show that focuses predominantly on science and also features live conversations in the weeds, airs every Sunday afternoon from 1.30 to 3 here on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. My father really started studying coral reefs intensively in Jamaica and developed a lot of techniques that then he was invited to other places around the, the world. And so he was down in the southern Red Sea and the, the coast of Eritrea at some point. He was in the Pacific and many islands in the Pacific for various reasons. They went to the Great Barrier Reef, they went back to the Great Barrier Reef with Sir Morris Young in his dotage, and and they had another expedition, but he did a lot of work in the Western Pacific in Palau, in Yap, Saipan, Guam, and places like that. He was studying the corals there as well. And in the latter years, he actually brought back, <laughs> he brought back Pacific baby giant clams and and we kept them at the lab for years in the aquarium at the lab it was something that wouldn't happen today because it's there's the danger of invasive species and in fact one of the huge impacts on the coral reef in jamaica today are the impact of these things called lionfish lionfish mm. are extremely poisonous fish they have extremely poisonous tips on the ends of their fins they're actually very good eating fish if you cut their fins off however they they were brought in as part of the aquarium trade to yeah. Florida yeah. and people let them go and they basically have no natural predators and so they're a fish eating fish and they're basically eating up all the native species and reproducing at this incredible rate and they've taken over a lot of the coral reefs in Jamaica and, and it has had a devastating effect on the teleost which are the ray finned fish in Jamaica it's just one of many many any devastating effects on coral reefs. But my father brought back these giant clams. They didn't survive because there's a predatory snail that drills holes and kills them and, and eats them. So they, they, there's a predatory snail in the Atlantic, in the Caribbean, that kills giant clams. And we did not successfully bring any giant clams to the Caribbean. And I'm glad we didn't. But he also had these giant clam shells. 
as part of his collection, and his ashes were put in one of them. And that giant clam with his ashes was suspended beneath an airbag. And we took it down as a group of divers to about 250, 300 feet, well off the deep fore reef, which is a vertical cliff in Jamaica, a place called the Pinnacle where my family is buried. And then I, I released the, the air from the flotation, and he went down in a thousand feet of water, maybe several thousand feet of water. I know the place, so I go back. When my grandparents, his parents died, I went back with their ashes to the same place, and I dropped them there. My grandparents died in the mid-1980s and late 1980s, and I happened to be the one who took care of them at their death. They were Holocaust survivors. My father was born in Germany, and my grandmother <laughs> snuck back into Germany to rescue my father. They were both... My grandparents were in Switzerland when the Nazis took over, and they came looking for my father, who was in boarding school. And my grandmother snuck over the border from Switzerland back into Germany, got my father from the boarding school, and took him back to Switzerland and skied over the Alps at night to escape. So they had a close call. My grandfather was the creative director of one of the main anti-Nazi publishing houses in Germany. I think I'm thinking Munich or Berlin or Geis, Zeitung, Geis, something like that. Anyway, they were after him. The Nazis were after my grandfather, and therefore they were after my father, and they escaped. The only people from that publishing house to escape the gas chambers. And after a while, they came to America, and my grandfather became a photographer for the Black Star Agency, and then he became a photographer for Life magazine. And as a photographer for Life magazine, he covered the atom bomb, and he took the first photographs of the hydrogen and atom explosions, and he was kind of in at the base of the science that was happening at the end of World War II. So he was an influential figure, and my father was this young up-and-coming scientist who was, you know, making waves and in 10 years basically took the field of coral reef ecology to the place it was and named it and then died. <laughs> and it was catastrophic. It was catastrophic for us, the family, that he died so early. And then we sort of dissipated and, you know, I went to academia for a while, but then became, you know, back to the lander in Vermont type of person and fled that whole scene. He, as far as I know, he got interested in the oceans. He was always interested in natural history. Always. I think he was just a young person interested in natural history, making collections and things like that. But he really was turned on to the study of coral reefs and, and the tropical ocean by going to Bikini Atoll and Enowitak Atoll. They studied, they looked at the reefs before the atom bombs and after the atom bombs. And the devastation was incredible. And in some cases, the bombs failed and fizzled and, and they would splatter molten plutonium <laughs> over the reef crest. You know, and you'd 
be swimming along and you'd just see all these balls of plutonium. A really seriously dangerous environment to be in. But, you know, it was Roger Revelle. Roger Revelle was a really important figure in science in the middle part of the last century. He was the head of Scripps Institute of Oceanography in his latter years, but in his formative years, he had been really involved in, in some of the early work in oceanography, the oceanography the study of oceanography. He was really kind of critical. And he had brought these young scientists to study the effects of the atom bombs on the coral reefs. He was the only person who was really thinking in terms of the wider scale. The rest of the military people were only really interested in, you know, making a bomb that worked and then made a bigger blast. But he was actually interested in seeing what the effects on the biological and the global systems would be. And he brought in these very naive young scientists who, you know, were turned on by what they saw. There was an amazing... It was just... I mean, the coral reefs of the Pacific are unbelievable. It's unbelievable. A, it also... Uh, there's a link in terms of um, the West Indies and Pacific Islanders in terms of a culture that's uh, non-Western or exploited by... You know, you know in other words, uh, he must have encountered not just... Um, and he did... And he did. And and this is part of that story, because my grandfather, as a Holocaust survivor, encountered that with the aboriginals of Australia. He, coming out of the Holocaust, saw what was happening to the aboriginals of Australia and recognized that there was a similarity happening. Something was going on there that was similar. They were basically... It was genocide. It was cultural genocide of the Australian Aboriginals. And because of my grandfather's actions in preserving the Aboriginal culture and the, the only complete copy, the only complete copy of all their laws and their creation narrative was given to my grandfather and taken away out of the country to preserve it. And I came by two generations later when I came by with them. They were expecting me back you know and 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 i took up that that thing so this is my father went from the united states and and where he could have been a professor at any number of universities but went to the university of the west indies because that's where the corals were and that's where the thing that he loved was the studying of corals and coral reefs and that's where you know he had a singular intensity and my grandparents supported him in that. And they kind of facilitated where they could from the United States. And it was really useful to have a facilitation in the United States because it meant surplus equipment. It meant extra tanks. It meant regulators. It meant photographic equipment. You know, often it meant film. Um, it meant a, a, lot of, a lot of stuff that came from the States that we really didn't have access to in Jamaica. So they supported it. The other thing that I remember in Jamaica is all these important scientists would come through. Roger Revell visited us. Harold Urey visited us. Carl Sagan visited us. Heinz Lohenstam, who's an amazing person who you've probably never heard of, visited us. Um, Sir Morris Young. There was this continuous kind of flow of top scientists from the world that came through Jamaica visiting my parents. And I grew up in that environment. I understood that to be normal. And then when I went off to university, expecting to find the same kind of intellectual ferment, I never found it. 
When I was a, a kid, you know, 10, 11 years old, the world was uh, taken by storm by the film The Harder They Come. Yes. And this uh, film basically introduced uh, reggae and popular West Indian music <laughs> to uh, the United States at large. And it's the story of uh, a guy who is based on a, a famous uh, gangster in Jamaica who was gunned down by the police in the 19, late 1948. The he, Harder They Come was the a really important, important film. It was yeah. a really important film. It was a really important in Jamaica as well. It was recognized as extremely important. And, and it was the first time that that Jamaican story was being told. Yeah. And that Jamaican story is still there. Okay. Jamaica, when you go to Jamaica, even today, when it was in those days, but even today, you confront poverty in its most extreme, blatant form. You, you confront poverty. You confront the poorest people on the planet, the people with absolutely nothing. All right. So I sit with my ancestors every morning before dawn. But at dawn come the indigent. And the poor people, the people with the homemade spear gun, the people with a piece of net that they've got, the people with fishing lines, and they come down to the shore and they go out to sea and they fish for what they can get because that is going to be their food for the day. So there on this coastline, the extremely poor people of Jamaica come down to find sustenance that the land gives and as a consequence of that it's extremely overfished because it's a very narrow fringing coastline it, it, the, the, the reef flat and the reef crest is about 100 150 feet from the shore it's easy access and one person after another with various kinds of fishing device come through but they're all these incredibly poor people who if they didn't get that fish they would not eat that day and so you know you're confronted with the, the you know my brother says my brother thomas says the two greatest enemies of the environment are the greedy and the needy and this is a case where you confront the neediest of humanity coming out to get a fish or two and coming back with a fish that any self-respecting fisherman would throw back as not being adequate but they're coming in with it because that is all they're going to get all they're going to get is there also i know in um and if you look at the, the border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic and the need for firewood, uh, there's this unbelievable deforestation that occurs because of people making cooking fires. Is that a problem in Jamaica or not really? Okay. It, it's, I have never seen that problem more, more emphasized than at the border of Haiti and, and the Dominican Republic, where one side of the border is forested and the other is bare brown earth. And that's the extent of the deforestation. Jamaica, Jamaica is a, is a Taino word for the land of wood and water. Jamaica has a natural abundance to it. You chop things down and they regrow. But I have to say that the entire landscape has been completely deforested and it's purely a second growth forest in, in the hinterland and in the places where the huge old mahoganies and cedars and blue mahos and the real 
big old trees, and there were many, many of them back in the past, used to exist. For example, the cotton tree. The cotton tree would grow straight up, a bowl straight up, and they were called hanging trees. They had duppies associated with them because people were hung on them. I have not seen a single great Seba cotton tree in Jamaica now. They've all been taken down. All the big old trees are gone, and, and you have secondary regrowth, and it's more like scrubland. But it's natural. There's a natural fertility to the inliers. We're listening to Peter Goro, the host of Spanning the Chasm, here on the Magical Mystery Tour. This is an edited version of Peter's show that originally aired about three weeks ago. Peter's show, Spanning the Chasm, a show that focuses predominantly on science and also features live conversations in the weeds, airs every Sunday afternoon from 1.30 to 3 here on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Whether corals were animals or plants was something that was not really settled until the early part of the 20th century, I believe. There was a question, and some people called them plants and some people called them animals, and it had turned out that they're both. They're animals that have symbiotic plants in them. And, you know, people have lived with corals and coral reefs for a long time, especially around the tropics, so the Pacific Islanders had intimate knowledge of corals and coral reefs and utilized them as a resource. Certainly the Taino Indians of Jamaica, the Taino people of Jamaica, when you look at their middens, and, and we used to, as children, go up to the tops of these mountains, nearby mountains, like, you know, kids always do, but we always found pottery and we always found bone beds. We always found gigantic fish bones, fish bones that we didn't even see in the 1950s. So the, the bones, that the, the size of the fish that the Taino were, were bringing in on a regular basis and bringing back up to their villages were very much larger than the size of the fish that we were seeing in the 1950s when the coral reefs were considered at their prime. And I mean, the people of the Torres Strait Islands, for you know, they actually consider the coral reef part of their property and they've divided the reef crest into these fish traps that when high tide comes up, fish can come in, but as the tide falls, the fish get concentrated more and more and more in these deep areas that are surrounded by vertical rocks, and, and then the people come and they get the fish in those spots. They're, they're very sophisticated fish traps, which have been being operated for thousands of years by the Torres Strait Islanders. There's a lot of deep knowledge of coral reefs that goes back in the indigenous knowledge and the indigenous people of Australia, for example, their intimate knowledge of the behavior of shark and, and various of the marine animals is an example of that. In Jamaica, the Taino fishermen left their fishing techniques to the escaped slaves of Jamaica, and they obviously crossed with them because there's no, as far as I know, no native Taino population in Jamaica, but there are 
black people who are intermingled with the Taino population and the techniques, the fishing techniques that are used, the trap fishing techniques that the Jamaicans have used all the time since for hundreds of years, they are the way the Taino used to fish. Spear fishing has come more recently and ghost fishing nets have come even more recently. And so there are all these modern techniques that have, have entered. But when you go out to sea, you find these, I mean, for example... I ran into one Mr. Leighton Smiley. Mr. Leighton Smiley is this elderly Jamaican man. He's still a line fisherman from the days when they only went out with lines and they caught fish with hooks on bait. And they would never, you know, it's impossible to destroy a reef with a line fishing. But then came the spear fishermen and then the people with ghost nets. And the spear fishermen, essentially, the fish that I knew as a child are all gone. I remember these huge schools of hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of fish, and each fish would be 50, 60 pounds in gigantic, and there would be blue wrasse and fat lip wrasse and Napoleon wrasse and all these amazing variety of fish, and I've seen none, none of them at all. I only see these tiny little fish anywhere from a foot to, to a few inches. Now, the lab that my father created has an area which is basically a wildlife preserve and this is one of the few places in Jamaica where you can still find places where the mangroves meet the water and the forest meets the water and that is the most productive where the red mangrove with their beautiful cathedral roots. These red mangroves have these roots. They, they don't have a regular trunk. They just have a bunch of roots that come out of their base, and they're arched roots. They're extremely beautiful. They, they are a cathedral. Actually, they are nature's cathedral. They, they have the same principle of supporting themselves that the flying buttresses of the cathedrals of Europe used, you know, thousands of years later. These plants, you know, know about supporting yourself through a hurricane. You know, these plants are hurricane-proof. They have the ability to withstand those huge... When, when the tide rises and it rides right through these trees. And so there's this limestone. It's called a dry limestone forest along the coastline there and it, it's the mangroves and salt tolerant trees and, and things with very thick resinous leaves and capable of handling extremes of temperature and extremes of salinity and those roots, those roots are essential essential nurseries for all the small creatures that yeah. they are where you find the baby fish and and this is one of the few places in Jamaica in the world still well that you can actually go and swim right at the edge of the forest where where those mangroves come down you can go in and i had this tiny little camera with this super high density thing and I had it on the end of a stick and I was kind of pushing it down you know in between the roots and down into the crevices and cracks and it was just like it was like I wasn't there because all it was was, was this tiny little camera going down and so the fish were less freaked out by, by my presence but 
It's a place where you see, for example, all the fry. They live under the mangrove roots and, and they hide under there, but they're kind of herded in by the needlefish, which are these very sleek, predatory needlefish. And then and then the needlefish are herd, held in by, by the young barracuda, which are, you know, like 12 to 15 inches long. And, and then a little bit further out into slightly deeper water, you have the three-foot barracuda that are kind of patrolling that piece of ground and, you know, herding in all the smaller fish. <laughs> and, and then, you know, I ran into a six-foot barracuda further out. <laughs> and, you know, a six-foot barracuda, now that's my size, you know, that's a substantial barracuda. And, and my goodness. I, I was wondering if you might talk a bit, because um, your mother, right. as, a, as a woman at that time with uh, two uh, small children. Three. In, uh, three. Three small children. And I just wonder if you could just talk about, you know, a lot of the challenges. I, I just find it uh, amazing that uh, she was able to carry on his legacy. So, you know, I talk about myself as doing a lot of things, but in the background is my wife. And my wife is like an essential part of this whole thing. And that was the same with my parents. Um, They founded the lab. My father was the one who went out into the ocean, and I went with him. But my mother ran the lab and did the physiological assays and did the tests and ran the equipment, and there was all this kind of chemical lab equipment that was happening in the laboratory, and they were measuring all these various compounds, you know, bicarbonates and carbonates and calcium and stuff like that in the water. They were measuring all these things that had to be measured, and they were doing it using wet chemistry. It was before the days of the mass spectrometer. My mother was a physiologist. My mother would have had her PhD before my father had they not got married. So my mother was the chemist and the physiologist, and she was running the lab in the at the university. My father was bringing in the specimens and and doing the some experiments in situ in the water, some in the lab where they would be exposing corals to radioactive elements to see how they built their skeletons. But all that work was done in conjunction with my father and my mother. Uh, can you speak a little bit to, you know, science is a, is a field that, uh, I mean, I have a good friend who dropped pursuing her PhD because of the chauvinism. And I'm just curious about how your and mother... there was a great deal of that. I, um, how your okay. mother managed that as a, as a woman in the West Indies Very in the difficult. 1950s. Very difficult. My mother was recognized in this 50th anniversary as the mother of marine sciences in Jamaica because she actually, not only did she do a lot of research, a lot of the research that my father and her wrote wrote up in their papers, but she also encouraged several generations of West Indian marine scientists to continue with their degrees and, and see it out. Because when you talk about chauvinism, yes, there was male chauvinism, you know, there was a lot of male chauvinism, but there was also this colonial chauvinism and this... It has to be called racism because, you know, all the professors were white. They all came from from England. They all wanted to rule their department like a little dictator, you know, and they wanted to be the professor and the professor told you what you were going to work on. And so there were a lot of these petty, petty jealousies. I can only call petty jealousies that were happening at the same time as this groundbreaking research was happening. And, you know, my mother comes from Panama. She has seven 
presidents of Panama in her lineage. Mm. So she comes from the Panamanian aristocracy in this sense. The Cuervo Arangos were the clan that defeated the caliphate of Andalusia. Mm. So they were my relatives. I'm not proud of this. But I have relatives from Spain, the Arangos, the Cuervo Arangos. They were given the raven. Cuervo is raven. They were given six ravens on a silver shield as their shield because they defeated the caliphate in some essential battle in Andalusia in, I don't know, 1400s. I, I can't tell you what the date was. But the, the, the history is not lost to the family who came to through Cuba and Latin America. But, you know, they married the mestizos. They married into the mestizos. So in my family, I have aristocrats of Europe and I have slaves from Africa and indigenous people from Central America. All of those were mixed into her, and she is a mestizo from Central America. And she was actually the first Panamanian marine scientist, woman marine scientist. My mother had me swimming as a tiny infant that I can't even remember learning to swim. I do not remember that. But I was trained at the age of 11 with an aqualung, and I became a member of this scientific diving team, which included about six or eight really core members. And there was a lot of photography. My father never killed a fish, for example. He never engaged in spearfishing or anything like that. He was purely interested in science and the ecology and the skeletogenesis and, and all these really interesting scientific questions that were just right in your face on a coral reef. And he assembled this group and we dove twice a day every weekend and I went out again and again and again and again and I was my father's companion in this and now this is recognized as the seminal period of the study of coral reefs and that my father Jacques Cousteau invented the aqualung but my father was the first person who really applied it to the study of corals and coral reefs in a systematic basis. Did, did you ever meet uh, I mean, just the only person? Yes, did you ever of meet course. Jacques Cousteau? I yes. did. I've met him several times. Oh, uh, He was a friend of my father's and he came to visit us in Jamaica long before my father died. And then after my father died, he came with the Calypso to Discovery Bay and he shot a film of the work in Discovery Bay of this young woman called Judy Lang, young She's older than me. She was there at this 50th anniversary, and she was one of these people whose memories triggered my memories, and together we kind of... Here's the thing. I, I find myself now... Now I'm the repository of those memories. I'm the repository of that history. And that history has been rekindled by these contacts with these people who also were there and took part in it. And I realized that my father passed in 1970, you know, 48 years ago. But I have all those memories. And now it's kind of incumbent upon me to inscribe them and to talk about them and to write them up and... So I've had this uh, really amazing experience. We come from an artistic family, all right? My parents went to the Bauhaus in Germany, which is one of the kind of seminal art schools of Europe in the mid 
century, last century. And my father was a scientist, but he was also a really wonderful artist. And he drew these artists' impressions of the Deep Four Reef. And one of them has become the archetypal drawing of the Deep Four Reef off Discovery Bay, Jamaica. It's like an abstract kind of off in the distance looking back through the ocean, which you couldn't really see. But he saw it in his mind's eye and was able to draw these huge reef structures. And and basically, the reef is a place where carbonates are formed and they lay down as skeletons and then they become sand and they pour down off the shelf and they pour down these sand channels into the deep, deep water where they coalesce at the bottom of these deep vertical cliffs, thousands of feet high in the shelf and then in the tailless slope at the bottom of that and then that goes down into 22,000 feet of water. It's just a really deep, deep piece of ocean and my father actually drew it in his mind's eye and that drawing has become famous in the coral reef business as the drawing that describes the deep four reef off discovery bay and it actually is a teaching tool you can stand students in front of it and say this is this and this is this and this is this and this is what it looks like and my daughter came as this like representative of the new generation and she drew this incredible painting that everyone just loves and and they took her into their heart and and not only that but she's a very driven woman and she became a qualified open water diver in like three days of intensive work and she actually became an open water diver and so she trained at the lab that my father created so it's like they felt the honor of having his granddaughter qualified to dive and she just took to it like a a fish in water really she's a good swimmer and a good diver this is the place where i ran into my first barracuda that scared the living daylights out of me and that taught me how never to flee from a barracuda you can never flee from a barracuda you always have to go at it you have to face it this is the place where i ran into the biggest shark i've ever run into We're listening to WGDR's own Peter Goro here on the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. This is an edited version of Peter's show originally aired about three weeks ago. Peter's show is Spanning the Chasm, a show that focuses predominantly on science and also features live conversation in the weeds which airs every Sunday afternoon from 1.30 to 3, here on WGDR. This is a carbonate reef. It's a, it's a limestone shoreline. It's... it's um, completely rotted out with caves the whole aquifer system is is our caves under, that have been created uh, d- during low water low water or during maximum glacial effect so th- there is this cave system that runs underneath all the limestone and the reefs and so you could be out on the reef crest 
and come across a freshwater spring out to sea. And it's really amazing. But you can actually drink from some of these. They're so fresh. You wouldn't want to drink because they also have a lot of um, nitrogenous compounds, sewage in other words, um, <laughs> from because of the huge population density in the area where the aquifer is recharged. And so this, the nitrates and the phosphates go down into the reef and are pretty much straight out onto the reef crest. There are places where you have these huge freshwater springs out to sea, okay? And that's a unique environment. And so there are these places where there are these blue holes and and these places where the springs have created these conical blue holes and they go down to about 60 feet, but they're actually on the shallow reef crest. And and those are places where you see a lot of big fish come in and, and a lot of stingrays. You'll see leopard rays. You'll see eagle rays. You'll see those rays that shock you. They're electric rays. They're, they're small, but, but you don't want to touch them. And... You see a lot of wildlife come in there. But I was once swimming with a friend across the Blue Hole, and the water was very, it was very windy and slappy day, and so there were short, sharp waves and a lot of water slapping, and the water was very murky from suspended air and suspended sediment. And I was just swimming through this to get to the reef crest. I had a friend behind me, about 10 feet, following me, and suddenly I saw something in front of me, and I saw motion. And I sees motion before it sees form. I saw motion before I saw form. Once I saw the motion, I keyed in on it, and I recognized it to be a tail, a shark's <laughs> tail. And the shark, I was in water that was 12 feet deep, and the shark's tail extended 8 feet of that 12 feet. So I'm looking at a tail of a shark that is 8 foot tall, all right? And... At the moment my body recognized what I was confronting, which was danger, I went into this automatic mode. My, I shook. Every muscle in my body just went da 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 And I shook for fear. I shook with fear. And then I had this instant of deep regret. <laughs> because I knew the shark at this time. I had had enough experience with shark that they are tuned in to deep vibration of fear and panic. They are tuned into those vibrations specifically because food is at the other end. And so I regretted it. And, and, and as I regretted it, this tail took one slap and boom, I was facing the shark. We were face to face. At that point, I was facing a shark. Its head was about three or four foot wide. All right? And this is the amazing thing. I was about a foot or two from the nose of that shark. Its eyes, sharks have this thing called a nictating membrane. It's a white kind of inner lid that goes thunk. It clapped up over the eyes because it's to protect the eyes of the shark when it's coming into strike. So the, the nictating membrane clapped shut over the eyes as my hands in utter terror came down towards the shark and I hit the water just near its eyes with my hands in a total panic. And then what happened was that shark, I saw it happen, I saw it happen. That shark just shook. Every <laughs> muscle in that shark just went duh, 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 duh. and I felt this, the water around me just shake and my whole body just shook with the shaking of the shark. And the shark teetered its pectoral fins just went 
They went side to side like that. It teetered. And then the next instant, bang, it turned around. I was facing the tail. The next instant, the cloaca opened up. Now I'm talking, the cloaca is the, the anal part of the shark. And it opened up. It was about eight inches across. It excreted this column of gray material straight at me. And then it looked solid. But then that huge tail took one swing across, a gigantic whoomph, and it just disappeared in a cloud of gray, <laughs> gray crap. And the shark leapt out of the water, and I was left in this kind of hole in the water that filled in. I never saw the shark again, but I thought I was in the last few seconds of my life, really. I thought I was going to die because all it had to do was open its mouth and I would have been sucked in. And it, it was an experience I'll never forget. But now big sharks are basically gone from the ocean. I did not see a single shark except a captive nurse shark, a ground-dwelling sand shark that, that eats kind of clams at the bottom of the ocean. The big shark are gone. They are fished out. But still, you see a shark, you have to pay attention because sharks are predators. And in the ocean, it's a wild place. It's still a wild place. So I saw a big barracuda, a six-footer. Now, my brother, who's the coral reef scientist, has actually lost a pinky and the lower part of his, I think it's his right palm, to a barracuda attack. So my brother, uh, this barracuda came up from about 40 feet, a big barracuda, and he was swimming with his daughter, and it took off the, the finger and the bottom part of his palm. Gone, completely gone. So my brother, having lost a piece of his, his, his hand to a, a barracuda, I know that they're, they can be dangerous, but he told me a story. And, and his daughter was the one who really saw the attack. And, and apparently it struck him three times and really only hit him once. And, and barracuda apparently have this pattern of striking three times. When you see a barracuda attack, it, it hits the fish and it takes out the center. And then it comes back and takes the tail, which is still flapping. And then it comes back and it takes the head. And it just like bang, bang, bang. It's just incredibly quick. If you don't happen to be looking at it, you will not see it happen. I've seen barracuda go after fish, and it's just you're lucky to see it if you see it. They're very, very fast. So the barracuda that took my brother's finger was well-known in the area. It was Cancun, Mexico. And it was a well-known barracuda because people came to feed it. Feeding a barracuda, it can kind of be thrilling because you see this big predatory fish come up and take your food. But it is also extremely dangerous to other people who come to the area and the barracuda expecting to be fed can mistake your hand for food. And I'm going to tell you this story that happened in the Virgin Islands not so long ago where there were a couple of American tourists who came down to these Virgin Islands and they, I think it was St. John's or it might have been St. Croix and they found a place where there was a big barracuda and they started feeding it. 
and every day they went to the same place. Barracuda are territorial, and once you come to their territory, they come and they look at you and they investigate you. And if you're deemed edible, you're you know you have to be shiny and not fish-like really for them to be interested. But fingers kind of look like they might be edible. So these guys came down and they brought fish and mackerel and, and squid and octopus and they fed the barracuda. And, you know, they were having a great time feeding this giant barracuda. And here's, here's the thing. On their last day, they went back to the same place to say goodbye to their barracuda because they'd established what they considered to be a friendship. And they didn't bring any food with them. And the guy comes up to the barracuda and waves his hands and says, sorry, I have nothing. And the barracuda took off both of his hands. The other person he was with, when he saw that the guy had lost both of his hands, stuck his hands under his armpits. And the barracuda just made mincemeat of his shoulders and his forearms completely shredded them but he kept his hands it's very dangerous to feed barracuda you do not want to feed barracuda because they might mistake your hands for food and you might lose them and they have the most incredible dentition they have teeth in the middle of their jaw they're they're so well um, endowed with teeth What's their main stay for silvery fish? They 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 will take younger barracuda. The big barracuda will take smaller barracuda. They will take jack. They will take any of the pelagic fish. They're they're fast enough to get to get the pelagic fish. But they tend to kind of hang into the coast, and they almost like they herd the fish their prey species in, and but the prey species might be herding like smaller fish in and those smaller fish will be herding even smaller fish so there's this like size range of stuff that's being and the ocean is a kind of it's a predator's environment there are a few fish that eat algae but most fish eat other fish and at the point that you get up to the the, the barracuda are like the top predator now because i don't see any shark there certainly are shark that could eat barracuda. A mako shark or a great white could easily swim fast enough, maybe a blue shark. The, the really fast ocean swimmers can get these barracuda. But now it looks to me like the big barracuda are the top of the food chain and they are attracted to silvery things, silvery fish, and especially things that flicker and move. And so you hear people having their white gloves taken away by barracuda. I was shooting with this little tiny camera and it shoots this thing called 4K video and it's just a beautiful little tiny camera in a tiny little plastic housing. It's no bigger than can fit between my thumb and my forefinger and it's a tiny little thing but it's in a plastic housing and there's a layer of air in between and it's very silvery and shiny. Well, that doesn't sound good. (laughs) I mean, I became... Come and get me. The first time I ran into my first barracuda, I thought, Hmm, this is something. And then what I did, I had had the foresight. I brought something called a monopod, which is just this plastic thing that I like telescopes out. And so I, I... A selfie stick. And I put the camera on the end of the selfie stick. I had a ball joint, so I could actually run with it upside down, but it would be running horizontally. And I, I extended the selfie stick to 67 inches in front of me. 
and I swam with it in front of me so the barracuda came and was looking at it and not me and it didn't look sufficiently like a fish. It wasn't wiggling in the right way, but they were definitely interested. I've seen the demise of the reefs, going from 90% coral cover to 5% coral cover. Given that, as you're swimming over the reef crest and you're seeing all this brown algae and green algae and all this algal stuff, every now and then, boom, there's a young, fresh coral. And here and there, you're going to find a young, healthy coral. And then the diadema, which are the echinoderms, or the, the starfish, the, the, the starfish are coming back. The diadema, which kind of are these spiny serotons. You don't want to touch them. They really are extremely painful if you get stung by one. A black okay. serotin with spies that might be a foot long, and they have eyes, little blue eyes that run down their sides, and they move their spines to kind of greet you. They are really an important herbivore, and they actually eat a lot of the algae, and in keeping the algae down, they allow place for the coral planula, the the young corals, to settle. And so every now and then you come across a place where the diadema, the black sea urchins, have recovered enough and are eating it down, and the young corals are... And it's like, okay, it looks like there's a young one here and a young one there. There's the possibility that this is going to regrow. There, there's this positive part to it. Here's the other thing. You know, I've buried my father and my grandparents there, and their ashes are there, and their ashes have become part of that ecosystem. And on the last day that I was sitting there at dawn, there's an old fisherman. By the way, the old men go out early. <laughs> the old men are out at dawn, and, and when it's flat, flat, calm, and beautiful. So there was an old man out there fishing, and I was watching him fish, and then I saw what looked like a fish trying to escape, and I thought, he's hooked something, he's hooked something. And I watched him, and he stood up, and then he was actually not even paying attention to what I was paying attention to. He was pulling up a fish trap, and so all of a sudden, up onto this canoe comes this fish trap with fish in it, and I'm realizing, okay, I'm watching something completely different. And I kept watching, and I realized it was the fluke of a whale that was coming up, and then up comes the tail of the whale, and then it spy hops, and then I'm watching it, poof, poof, you know, giving its puffs. And I watched as a pilot whale, and there are a black whale 15, 20 feet long or so, came, and it basically came all the way over this burial ground of my ancestors and all the way along the shore right in front of me, and I watched this whale just lolly gaggling kind of tail up flukes up head up you know just kind of 
gaggling down and then comes into the reef crest and it crosses into the back reef along this canoe channel that I call Mr. Smiley's Canoe Channel because he's the only canoe I've ever seen run down that particular canoe channel across the reef crest. There are very few places you can take a canoe and there's this one there that he takes his canoe down and this whale comes down the same channel into the back reef kind of lollygags in there and then goes back out to the fore reef and then continues down the fore reef and I'm Watching this pilot whale in its home ground, it knows the turf, it's at home here, and I'm thinking, you know, all is well, all is well. That was my final thought, and it was sort of like a spiritual experience in the sense that, you know, absent deity, this is all you really need. Yeah. Do you think that these small bits of coral that are regenerating, do you think they're adapting to a different climate? Than yes, I do. Mm-hmm. You see, the ones that are successful are the hardy ones. That's the only ones that make it through. And those are the ones that are going to be slightly more tolerant of the conditions, turbid water, you know, the water's not as clear, the water has more stuff in it. These are the hardy corals. These are corals that can maybe take an extra degree or two of high temperature and not die and not bleach. So what is selection is happening, and I think it's selecting out a hardier stock that is more adapted to the higher temperatures and turbidity and, and oceanic conditions that are happening. But there are young corals there are young corals everywhere and that to me it's like okay it's a blessing i'm coming across this devastated place that's been continually kind of used by people by poor people who need the source of protein need what what's coming off the reef but they're not getting everything not by any means there's still a healthy ecosystem with predators and top predators and and pilot whales and and things like that happening there as well so somehow i'm hopeful i'm hopeful well that's a wonderful counterpoint to you know there's there's a lot of doom saying from climate scientists these days so I, sh- I should say there's a lot of bleakness there the coral reef has gone from being a place where carbonate solid carbonate rock in the terms of skeleton and algal plate because the algae also produce skeletons limestone skeletons so there's a massive production of carbonate on a coral reef that massive production of carbonate happened in the hands of the corals and the coralline algae that has stopped Mm -hmm. now it's purely soft algae that are living there and the coral and the carbonate that is there is being broken down by storms and boring sponges and and boring clams and and all sorts of interesting things that are specifically made to break it down but the deposition of carbonates has ceased on carbonate reefs that's a very detrimental thing to coastlines because it means that the source of protection is is diminishing those massive coral skeletons that were rolled up onto the shore actually protected the inshore from the force of the hurricane waves so that the, there's a, a significant loss of carbonate 
limestone in those areas and it's not being replaced by anything but soft algae and that that is a problem that's mm-hmm. a long-term problem there's another problem and that is the acidification of the ocean and there was a gentleman there one of the people who i gave an award to and that's the other thing i was i, I was the one who gave the awards <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> i gave an award to a previous director of the lab and and his work has to do with acidification of the oceans and and the possibility of corals not being able to lay down skeletons within a hundred or two hundred years, the oceans will be too acid for corals to lay down a carbonate skeleton. What's going to happen then? That was Peter Goro from his show Spanning the Chasm that originally aired about three weeks ago. Peter's show is on every Sunday afternoon from 1.30 to 3, a show that focuses predominantly on science and also features live conversations in the weeds. And deeper and deeper and deeper Gliding down through the dark green water He could breathe underwater because he had amphibious nostrils On the way down he passed hundreds of trout of different sizes Trout are freshwater fish and have underwater weapons. Don't you go to the Trout are very valuable and immensely powerful. Keep away from the trout. Just listen to me, young fellow. What need is there for fish to sing when I can roar and bellow? about it for this magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening and until next time have a wonderful week
fine. Fine.